Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast. Centre for Mental Health challenges policies, systems and society so that everyone can have better mental health. I'm Thea Joshi and in each episode I speak to people with experience of mental health difficulties, someone working in a specific area or a member of our team about mental health and social justice. And this month I sat down with Andy Bell, the Centre's Chief Executive, to hear about what motivated him to work in mental health, the changes he's seen in the nation's mental health over the past 20 years, and the major challenges he's seeing in mental health at the moment. And we kept coming back to this question of how we balance the really hard things in this area with a hope and optimism that things can really progress and get better. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Hope you do too. Welcome to another episode of the podcast and a very warm welcome to my special guest, Andy Bell. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, So you are actually a returning guest to the podcast. I did just check and you joined us actually over two years ago in the spring of 2021, which feels like a very long time ago in lots of ways. It was ages ago. barely remember that time. We were really in the midst of COVID still and, and dealing with all of that in the very intensest, most intense part of that. And, and all that that kind of meant for the world and for mental health and for, for us as an organisation as well. So we're really happy to have you back on now. And um, obviously very happy to say that you were actually appointed Chief Exec this year in March, I'm delighted to say. So I wanted to get you back on the podcast um, to hear about the kind of the key challenges you feel that we're facing within mental health and the nation's mental health, what needs to be done there. Um, and, and also looking at the centre's role in that and, and our kind of role in the wider mental health sector as well. So no, no small ask nice and easy yes but I guess I just wanted to kick us off I'm really nosy and interested to know about kind of what led you to work for Centre for Mental Health in the first case all those years ago it is a few years ago now don't think about what you're doing in 2002 I, I don't know <laughs> um, so, so I just think I mean I worked at the King's Fund which was another lovely organization and and um it was just really clear even then that mental health was one of the big social justice issues of our time. And and um, obviously the issues then were somewhat different to the ones they are now, not as different as my as I might like them to be, but but um there was a real sense that that it, it's it's an area where inequality and social justice really do play a huge part in our health and well-being and um we all of us have different types of of ways in which our lives have have uh, been affected by either mental health or more importantly mental ill health and um it was a great opportunity to come work for a organization that was at the heart of bringing about big scale change at the time the center was then called Sainsbury center and it was um really involved in in supporting the creation of new teams to support people in their communities and and to uh, offer a really different take on what was happening in terms of the the social response to mental health so uh, Mm -hmm. it was a really exciting opportunity to uh, I'm in my second job so so, um, (laughs) it was an exciting opportunity to to work somewhere else and try something different and uh, I thought maybe for a couple of years and you know just a few years later here we are um no that's that's a really kind of helpful background on just a little bit about you and um I guess which then naturally makes me think um and and again huge question but 
what are some of the main things that have changed or the shifts that you've seen in that time? Because that is quite a long time. We've seen a lot of change within mental health, even in the last sort of five, 10 years. So I kind of, are there, are there certain things that stand out for you as really critical things that we've seen uh, develop or change in that time? Mm, thank you. It's really interesting to reflect, isn't it, over a 20 year period? And, and um, the one thing that's notably different is the place of mental health in public and political debate in, in actually public life and, and life as a whole. Um, yeah. Mental health and mental ill health have always been there in society, but they were in 2002, three not talked about, certainly not talked about in a helpful and constructive ways. Um, I was recently thinking about popular culture or media portrayals of, of mm. mental ill health at the time and people were either portrayed as pitiable or dangerous yeah. and there was very little else and mental health literacy was was non-existent uh there hadn't been any uh major kind of awareness or anti-discrimination campaigns in england at that time and uh we have in some ways come a long way yeah. uh you know we, we have much more conversation about mental health at every level from, from the national media to what happens in schools and families and, and workplaces and communities um, and of course that's largely very positive that, that, that really has brought about quite a shift. Mm. Um, there's been changes in mental health services as well of course um, some ups and downs I think it's fair to say and, and of course some things that, that haven't changed as much as we would like. Um, if anything more people are now detained under the Mental Health Act than they were in 2002. Uh, we have many more people in prison than in 2002, and we know about the prevalence of poor mental health among the prison population. We we have, you know, very long waiting lists right now for treatment and support. There's there's markedly more help out there. There was no such thing as as NHS talking therapies 20 years ago, um, yeah. or even 15. Yeah. Uh, there was a postcode lottery. If you turned up at your GP, it was just pure luck whether they had access to a practice counsellor or not. Um, now, although there are massive problems with access to mental health support, every single part of England has an NHS talking therapy service uh, that, that meets the needs of some groups of people in a whole different way to what was around before. So, again, there are undoubtedly positives. Um, and, and we've had periods of time where government has invested significantly in mental health services and also times of austerity when we've seen very worrying disinvestment. Um, we've seen the mental health workforce go up and down and up again. And we've seen kind of greater or lesser awareness of the wider causes of, mm. of poor mental health. Um, uh, and I think increasingly we're now understanding that that our mental health isn't purely about us as people. Um, you know, we can't sort the nation's mental health out by encouraging people to just talk to one another. Yeah. Um, we have to understand the importance of, of economic inequality, of, of racism, of homophobia and transphobia and all the other structural causes um, of, of, of distress and difficulty. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think this is um, a topic that comes up quite often on the podcast around that kind of very fine uh, tightrope between really confronting and facing the, um, the kind of really major issues in mental health and also having space for optimism and looking back at where we've come. Um, not that you should look back on a tightrope. I'm really mixing, mixing my metaphors here. But, you know, 
<laughs> it's 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 interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, you know, if we look back to 2002, it's a completely different ball game in terms of you know the way that mental health is part of the national discourse and stuff. So we can't we can't lose that and just say everything is awful and it's as bad as it was, even though in some ways it is. But equally, we cannot just kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, well, that's fine. Mental health is sorted now. Like we know it's not. We know that these issues are just as pressing and just as bad in some ways as they were then if not worse in some cases I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned there about um, huge rises in the number of people being detained under the mental health act uh, over the last sort of 20 years and I was just really interested in that and what you see as the main sort of causes behind that obviously it is multifaceted but what do you see as the main things driving that rise yeah it, it is a worrying phenomenon isn't it and and um Again, researchers tried to answer those questions. There are two things that stand out, one of which is we did have a um, set of provisions to the 1983 Mental Health Act in 2007, which increased the scope for the use mm -hmm. of compulsion, both in terms of making it easier for someone to be sectioned, but also continuing the use of sectioning when people go home through community treatment orders. There are other changes actually at that time that improved people's safeguards, so a right to advocacy, for example. Um, nonetheless, that did uh, make it more likely that, that more people would be brought into the system. And um, of course, in the years since, I think there is a, a fairly kind of clear indication that um, erosion of earlier help services of community-based support of things that will keep people well or, or, or prevent relapse. Um, where particularly austerity in local government has peeled away those layers of support, um, uh, more people are reaching the crisis point where there is no alternative but but for the use of, of um, compulsory powers. Um, worryingly, of course, we've also seen in that time that, that uh, if anything, the disproportionate use of coercion uh, uh, for towards black people in particular, but people from, from almost all racialized backgrounds, uh, the, the difference with the white population as if anything increased. So, so um, some really worrying signs there that, that, that we really do need to have, have a sense of urgency about trying to tackle. Definitely. And I mean, that's that's so sobering, isn't it? And, and again, just brings home the need for racial justice and for changing the way that services work and the way that systems are structured. The whole thing is still in such vital need of change because you know, this is this is still going on. And if anything, it's actually worse by the sounds of it. So so one thing that, that uh, we did last year was uh, mark 20 years since the Breaking the Circles of Fear report was published again in 2002. And what was really distressing about that was how little has changed. Um, and, and in fact, the, the findings of that report remain just as true now as they were then, despite some efforts in the interim from from government and from the NHS to to address some of the issues um never for long enough never with enough resource never with enough determination to really make a difference there is of course work happening now the patient and carer race equality framework that that ha came out of various pieces of work including the independent review of the mental health act is now beginning to be extended across the whole of the NHS and indeed other sectors as well and we really do all have to get behind efforts to to um, ensure that that has the very best chance of working um, but we also need to look at the wider economic and social reasons 
um, why there are there are these disparities in the first place. It's 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 um it's not enough simply to say, well, is it about wider society or is it about mental health services? It's a stale, tired debate which gets us nowhere. We have to accept that it is both, and we need reform in both in order to tackle. Uh, the, the gross injustice that that, that uh, people are still experiencing today. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a it's a kind of um, it's a false divide to say that it, it's one or the other. We know that mm. racism mm. is systemic and and kind of embedded and inbuilt within all of our systems. So it will take that kind of coordinated approach. And I feel like this has uh, really helpfully led us into a wider conversation. We've already sort of started having it uh, around kind of what you see as the major challenges facing people's mental health at the moment. I mean, we've already talked about it, racism and and institutional racism as as part of that. But yeah, what what do you see as, as those key challenges? Yeah, I, there's a lot to think about, isn't there? And one of the reasons why we've been thinking a lot about what would the whole of government response to mental health, the nation's mental health look like, is because we can't just see mental health as being something that exists in isolation from other areas of public policy. Um, and we need to have that that properly kind of comprehensive approach. And I think... Uh, the first place you have to look is is around uh, financial um, inequality and injustice. We know that that um, poverty is massively toxic to people's mental health, particularly children, but people of all ages. And we know that that more unequal societies have higher rates of mental ill health, and and uh, vice versa. More equitable societies see lower rates of of mental health problems. And we can see from examples of where uh, changes happened, particularly to boost the incomes of the poorest, that you see significant improvements um, in in uh, uh, mental health, particularly rates of depression, for example. Um, so we really do have to address this, particularly in in um, the context of the cost of living crisis, which has come hot on the heels of, of um, uh, the pandemic and and uh, leading into to longer term threats around um, the climate crisis and and um, a conflict in the wider world. You know, we really do need to think about mental health in that way uh, as a product of all of those forces, and therefore there are solutions that policymakers, both in national government, local government, business, civil society, can all look at to improve people's mental health at whatever level, from, from global discussions at the United Nations through to what happens in neighbourhoods and schools and workplaces. Yeah, thank you. That's a, obviously like a really key part of our work and, and something we've done quite a bit of work on really recently. And I obviously will add some resources to the show notes um, for more information on that. But I guess it's it's an interesting question because it has been such a focus of our work, particularly over the last few years. But, you know, going back historically at the centre um, and I wondered you know, you mentioned the solutions there, and that's a really key part of what we're doing at the centre is saying there are solutions to these things. They are hard. Mm. These are mm. complex issues, but they are not uh, impossible. They are not, you know, inevitable. Do you find it easy to to have hope, to have optimism? I guess I guess what I'm saying is I find it quite difficult to have optimism when you see the way our society is at the moment, when you see the, the state of our politics, the kind of conversations that are being had, the rhetoric around uh, people on social security. You know, do, do you see places for hope and optimism within that whole situation and conversation? Uh, yes. And I, and I think it's, it's often very difficult to hold hope. 
um but we've had to in the past when times have got difficult and and we'll have to again in the future when times get difficult and and um i think the thing we learn is that as organizations that seek to prompt and generate and encourage social change um and be part of social change and change ourselves and be prepared to be changed is that you can actually go a long way by chipping away at things by 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 not accepting um discriminatory narratives by not allowing pessimism to get in the way of of, of, of a realistic understanding of how hard things are um and and by being prepared to stand up for what you believe in um to to be robustly connected to the evidence um it is possible to to change people's minds and bring about political change um in terms of policies and and um ideas through robust argument clear communication and and um actual honesty you know just just i think the, the most important social movements around mental health have come from people with lived experience. They haven't come from organizations. They haven't come from charities or, or, or academics. They've come from people talking about their experience, not being prepared to take second-class treatment anymore, not being prepared to be second-class citizens. And uh, uh, that's where we have to get our hope from. For us as organizations, it's about supporting and being alongside those movements, about sharing the evidence and, and being really, really clear with people in positions of power that sometimes they need to hear things they don't want to hear. And sometimes the public have to hear things they don't want to hear. Um, but it's our job. We have the privilege of this position of this organization, uh, the alliances and partnerships we're part of uh to have a platform and we have to use it well yeah and i it's really interesting because we talk sometimes in mental health around this idea of like uh, toxic positivity and <laughs> and this sense that we have to just say everything's amazing and i'm gonna like make myself well and i'm gonna be super positive and this day will be good and and how damaging that can actually be mm. um but equally that there can be hope. And I think there's some really interesting kind of um, projections or, or reflections of that in the work that we do in that just saying everything's great now for mental health and actually everyone is, is doing really well or everyone can get the help they need or everything's fantastic is actually not going to help us when we're looking at mental health. Um, that we need to really take a realistic approach, but equally that we can draw on the experience of so many people who've struggled with their own mental health and the resilience they've shown and the ability to persevere through that. And that's where we can draw our hope and say, actually, if people can, on an, again, on an individual basis, if people can manage to persevere and endure through these things, actually there's hope for all of us and us as a wider society, which I appreciate is a, is a little philosophical, but that's, that's where I went. No, but I think that's right. And it's our job to persevere in terms of the things we we know uh, from the evidence we've gathered and and uh, what we hear and see every day and and to to um uh, be hopeful but not unrealistic we have to accept that that um often things can be quite contradictory can't they you know we yeah. we have seen significant investment in mental health services over the last 3 to 4 years really significant investment in the NHS mm. we've seen mm. the workforce increase we know because the national audit office has shared data but we've also seen waiting lists getting longer, people being made to wait, being told you're not unwell enough yet to be treated. Um, and those things don't necessarily seem like they make sense side by side. But nonetheless, it's our job both to call out the difficulties 
um, but also to show that things can be different and better and, and to acknowledge when people working in local government, the voluntary sector, the NHS, you know, all the organisations that are there to support our mental health, that those people are working exceptionally hard in really very, very difficult circumstances, many of them still still struggling with the trauma and burnout of the last few years. So, so um, we, we have to give a kind of truthful picture, and that truthful picture has good and bad in it. Yeah. Yeah, and holding that nuance in a world that's increasingly kind of polarised and fragmented, and particularly on some of the social channels that we're on, um, it's actually, mm. you have to say it's actually, it's both and, it's not either or, it's not just everything is awful or everything is brilliant. We have to just sit in that uncomfortable grey space, holding the tension that, you know, services may be trying really hard and the people in them are working super hard and equally some people are not getting the support they need. But, but I think it's so important what you say that, that understanding those challenges you know we, we know that, that um, it's a really challenging time for people working in mental health services right now but yeah. we also know that that some people in particular in, in inpatient services are not getting good enough care. Um, and we know that that you know sometimes that leads to uh, abuse happening. Um, but for many people, if they're going to hospital outside their local area, or, or they're spending long periods of time in hospital, they're losing touch with their communities and their families. And we need to uh, address that and understand why that's happening, and what we can do to to provide people with better support. Definitely. So, so, so another big challenge, I think, is how we look at mental health services, actually, and how we, we support those services to, to uh, be better uh, and, and to build on what's positive there now, but also accepting they do have to change. Uh, our recent Festival of Ideas um, events looked at uh, significant ways in which services have to change. Um, and we know for, for a lot of people, particularly those from minoritized backgrounds, NHS mental health services as they stand don't provide uh, a safe or relevant um, option. Uh, and, and that is something that we really do have to address. We really do have to explore how the support we get for our mental health can actually meet people's needs. Um, you know, why is it that, that uh, autistic people are told that, that um, uh, there isn't therapy for them because it hasn't been adapted to meet their needs. Um, there are a number of ways in, in which groups of people find, you know, people who are told that, that if they're misusing alcohol um, and have depression, that, that, that they can't get help for their depression until they stop drinking, but, but their depression is what's leading them to, to drink to excess. So, so yeah. we have got some really very significant issues with the kind of mental health support that people uh, can get hold of. A lot of that is due to uh, financial constraints. Mental health services have been underfunded forever. Um, and, and I think it's really interesting looking back at the 75 years of the NHS. Um, when the NHS started, there was really only long stay hospitals. Um, yeah. And we're only now beginning to fill in some of the gaps in terms of what, what the NHS can do for people's mental health. And that means we need a fairer share of resources. Um, but for that, we also have to provide much more equitable, much more personalised support for people that actually respects their 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 identity, their culture, their background, um, and and we are a long way from being able to do that. So, so I think that the third 
big challenge that, that we're wrestling with and other people are wrestling with is is um uh, the fact that for people with mental illness society still isn't equal far from equal in fact um uh, there's nothing more shocking than the fact that, that someone living with a diagnosis of a severe mental illness has a 20 year shorter life expectancy than someone without but we also know people are treated less well um in schools in the labor market um and in all aspects of life much of the more overt explicit discrimination that, that happened many years ago has thankfully been um removed it used to be impossible for example to sit as an mp or be on a jury if if you'd experienced mental illness or been detained under the mental health act uh, those have all been swept away um but people are still um disadvantaged in multiple ways and we have a benefit system that, of course, is there to provide people with in income when they most need it and, and to be the safety net. But it's not providing the safety net. Mm. Um, uh, the terrible experiences people have at the work capability assessment of having benefits taken away because they haven't done a certain thing um, of, of the two child limit on, on child benefits, for example. Um, uh, there are a number of ways in which our systems still treat people with mental illness poorer than than, than they should uh, and so I think we and and our partners and many others have a job to do to to call out um these injustices and and to find workable solutions and and a lot of our work is is um trying to focus on that and and as you say these things are injustices and for for me just even hearing the, the kind of challenges that you spoke about there, it perfectly sums up why the centre's focus is um, social justice in mental health, because you don't actually have to look far, you only have to just glance beneath the sort of mainstream narrative around mental health that is wholly, often wholly individualistic to mm. recognise actually there's injustice all over the place um, within our society, obviously, but specifically within mental health, there are just massive, gaping, glaring inequalities. Um, and, and, you know, the centre is just saying, actually, this isn't OK and we are going to keep fighting until this changes because this is absolutely unacceptable. It's about it's about persevering and about knowing that it really does take uh, time to make lasting, sustainable change. You know, when we're involved in a campaign or we campaign for a change that makes a difference in the immediate term, we rightly celebrate that you know it was a really positive thing when people with a mental illness were were prioritized as they should be for covid vaccinations in 2021 and that had to be worked for it didn't happen automatically but we we realized that there are many more such things that need to change the most lasting changes are the ones that take longest to 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 uh, to bed in um and yeah it, it it's not a quick job no, and as you actually said yourself in a in a recent blog um, about planting trees, you know that that's the issue often, isn't it? That well, that's one of the issues that often policy and the kind of um, policy landscape is very short term, and we have to accept that the most intractable problems are going to take time to fix. And so, of course, if we could, we would snap our fingers and these things would change because people are suffering because of this right now. But equally, it's being able to have that long term view and say we are going to keep fighting. We are going to keep chipping away at this until we see sort of sustainable, lasting change that is needed. Some of the things that we would most like to see happen won't bring about immediate benefits. Um, so if we really gave um, 
young children and young families better support for their mental health. Obviously, an example of that would be providing support with parenting, for example, which we've been campaigning for for a very long time, or, or, or improving mental health support in schools. Uh, in a sense, you're both preventing things, which means you don't know that they would have happened or not, but also uh, the the benefits are longer term. If if we were to really start to make the changes that are necessary to turn around that 20 year life expectancy gap for people with a mental illness, again, the benefits wouldn't happen straight away. Um, yeah. It takes a long time to know you've made any difference to something like that. So, so um, sometimes it's about doing the things in the short term, you know, will make a long term difference, but persuading policymakers and people with money in their pockets to invest in things where they won't see a return straight away or possibly not even at all is a real challenge. So, so um, yeah, we want to get out there and do some more tree planting. And again, I don't know why, but I'm I'm struck with the parallels between what we are talking about and also mental health and and sort of uh, recovery on a on a more individual basis. That mm. we would love for change if we're struggling with our mental health, we'd love for change to happen really really quickly. And and yet, quite often the solutions are longer term and they take a lot of work. And you know, it can take a long time to see genuine sustained a uh, kind of recovery or change happen and it's having being able to have that long-term view and say okay we're here for the long haul you know that's how I see it and that's how I see the center is saying we're here for the long haul there are no easy answers but we won't give up yeah um, I think it's a really interesting observation that, that so many of the things that apply to us as individuals apply to us as social systems as well and I don't think there's any coincidence mm -hmm. in that because social systems are just made up of collectives of people yeah exactly exactly it, it strikes me as well that a lot of what we've been talking about is the complexity and structural element to a lot of the things that we are talking about that that challenge our mental health, you know, the, the unequal structures in place um, and the fact that we can't just, for instance, say that we better fund mental health services, but that we have to look at uh, all of the other parts of people's lives and the other parts of uh, the services and the support that they need to really make a lasting holistic difference. So I guess I'm kind of interested in how you see that perhaps happening or how government could play a role in actually addressing issues in a more holistic fashion. I mean, there's one simple thing that could be done by the government, um, but also every local council, uh, every integrated care system, every combined authority, every business, uh, and that's having mental health in all policies. It's a really simple idea. It's one that, that is um, common in the public health communities to talk about health in all decisions or all policies. And, and it's a simple idea. If you're developing a policy, whether it is national government looking at its policies around uh, asylum, um, or, or housing, or whether it's a local council looking at its planning policies or economic development, um, whether it's an integrated care system thinking about the future of its health services. Um, if you think about, well, what impact will this have on people's mental health and how will it support people living with mental illness? Really mm -hmm. simple questions. Um, but they can begin to shape policies using evidence of what we know will benefit people's mental health. Actually, you can make quite significant shifts just by asking those simple questions and governments or, or local authorities of any political um, persuasion can use that to make a significant difference in the way that, that they utilize their resources, the way they prioritize uh, the decisions they make about the way really difficult, knotty issues are, are dealt with by thinking about, well, how will this support our mental health? And if, if that sounds like that, that's... Um, 
a bit unrealistic, it's worth remembering that, that the economic and social cost of mental health problems was 120 billion the last time we counted, which was before mm. the pandemic. Yeah. Um, we're having a look to see what it looks like now, um, and we'll be reporting on that later in the year. But but um, it's a very expensive social issue. So yeah. so if you can improve people's mental health, even one percent, um, if you can support fairer lives for people with mental illness, even a bit, you can both make a difference on a human level, but also have a better functioning society and and. Um, it, it could make a very substantial difference. So um, I think there are there are ways in which this would both make sense and and make a real difference. Completely. And I think, you know, it's that sense of if if we took that kind of approach, we'd have this less sort of somewhat discordant reality where we're hearing some messages that are, you know, we really want to support people's mental health and we want people to get well and we want people to live their best sort of, you know, lives. And and then other policies which you think, how on earth can this be good for someone's mental health? You know, the, mm. the things we've seen recently around uh, refugees being put on barges, things we've heard about, as you say, the social security system, and you think, okay, there's a desperate to dire need here for people to actually consider the implications of this for people's mental health. And, and as you say, it's not a nice to have, you know, the, the government and the Treasury, in fact, cannot ignore this, because it has massive implications, um, not only not least for people's lives, and their quality of life, but also for for the whole of the nation's um, kind of costs and finances. Yeah, it, it makes sense from every perspective. Uh, and it's not just about being nice or being a nice thing. Um, yeah. It's actually about having a flourishing society that, that um, is probably more equitable, certainly fairer, um, and and where people enjoy better well-being, and and that literally is in everybody's interest. That there is nobody that doesn't benefit from that. Exactly. And I guess I just wanted to uh, quickly ask you. You know, I'm thinking about the current situation in the UK in our healthcare, um, the whole nation's mental health. What one thing most concerns you, and what one thing gives you hope? I'll tell you the thing that gives me hope first. Is, okay, that's um, allowed. Thank you. Um, <laughs> We recently completed our evaluation of the Better Mental Health Fund, which was a government scheme, and it put money into the hands of local councils to promote mental health and well-being in 40 of the most deprived areas of the country. And they largely put money in the hands of community organisations they worked with um, to promote mental health and well-being within their communities, for their communities. And we were lucky enough to evaluate that and see that it made a massive difference. Um, and it really shows that if you trust communities, if you trust people, if you you actually kind of take people's mental health seriously. I mean, this was a trifling amount of money, but but uh, we could see the difference it made in all those places and the creative ways people used it. Imagine if we did more of that all the time. Imagine if we trusted communities more, if local public health teams in local councils had the resources to do this more routinely. Uh, and community organisations were better, more properly funded. You know that that really, I think, is a great cause for hope because it shows that that um, you know a relatively simple thing can make a very big difference. Um, I think the cause for concern probably has to be within mental health services. Um, the the increasing use of the Mental Health Act, which I know we talked about and and um, I think some of the recent um, television uh, documentaries that have showed people what 
many will already know uh, yeah. about the terrible experiences that some people have in, in uh, inpatient care. We really do need to be thoughtful about what kind of mental health services we actually want for the future. Um, we've rightly been focusing on recent years in expanding particularly community support and, and building out and closing the treatment gap. But we've also got a quality gap and crucially an equality gap um, mm -hmm. in services. Um, we know that, that, you know, some groups of people are at greater risk of, of uh, poor treatment within services. And again, we have to acknowledge the exceptional hard work that people in the system do and the dedication that they have to, to, to providing the best possible support and knowing the terrible circumstances many are working under. But we do have to acknowledge that, that we really do need to change the way services are working, the kind of places in which support is offered, the fact that many of the buildings mental health services use are dilapidated and in urgent need of replacement or at least repair. Um, and there is opportunity to change things. There are, there are lots of ideas out there for how we could have better functioning, um, more compassionate, more effective services for people. And, and we need to find a way of unleashing those. Amazing. Thank you, Andy. I, I I am so grateful for the way that you managed to bring hope into that despite such a challenging situation and then setting that out. And I think that's kind of what we basically said we needed to do and what, what the centre does. So you've exemplified that very well. But yeah, agreed. There are, there are major changes needed to really uh, develop and create the mental health services that people deserve. Um, and yeah, it's exciting to hear that the ideas for that are out, that there are solutions out there. Where I wanted to end on is is what I try and ask guests on our podcast, which is it's just um, a very quick question about I'd be interested to know, you know, what do you do to maintain your own well-being? This is a challenging role. It's a challenging space to be in, as we have clearly outlined. And, um, you know, it's, again, helpful to remember that we're not just talking about mental health. But this is something that affects all of us. And so, uh, yeah, what what do you do to maintain your own well-being? Well, obviously, I'm very lucky. The organisation I work in has 25 other splendid people in it, um, and that makes quite a big difference. But but uh, it's a bit of a cliche in the year we were at Chelsea Flower Show to say I do love my garden, but I do love my garden, uh, and going out and walking is great, and and um, uh, watching nonsense on television is is entirely splendid, um, and a little bit of sport as well. So so I don't do it myself; far too lazy. Um, <laughs> but but. Um, yeah, it, it's um, it's amazing, isn't it? The things that actually are we gravitate to are, are generally the things we liked when we were nine or ten. Apparently, I did yes. learn this recently that the things you like as an adult, the things you actually like as a person, just think about what you liked when you were nine or ten. It's probably that. Yeah. Okay. So true. So true. Um, Spice Girls features high on mine. Uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting to us um, and taking the time out to do this. Uh, it's been super helpful to chat to you. And uh, yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope listening to our conversation has inspired you in the movement for mental health equality. We rely on support to fight for change. So please give what you can at centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. See you next time.